Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 7. That's page 1117 in the Pew Bible if you are following along there. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But we now, by dying to what was what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, Soul is a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do. Excuse me, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Thanks, Ray. So uh, I have a question for you. How many of us can resonate with this? For how many of us do you find this to be true? And that is that in some area of your life, or perhaps in multiple areas of your life, what you discover is that no matter how hard you try, and you try, you want, there's the desire is there, so you try, that no matter how hard you try, that in whatever area of life this happens to be, or in multiple areas of life, no matter how hard you try, you cannot get your act together. How many of us can resonate with that? That there is some area of our life where we simply cannot get our act together, right? Maybe for you, it's, uh, maybe it's being on time, right? Maybe for you, something like that. Like, you just... You cannot get your act together. If something starts at 6 o'clock, your friends are having a party, and it's 6 o'clock is when it's going to start, they do not expect you to be there until 6.30, right? I mean, they don't, even, they don't even start looking for you out the window until 6.30. If you, if you go to work, you might be a little bit better at work, right? So maybe you're supposed to be at work at 8.30 in the morning, and you, you just you can't get there any earlier then 8.35, 8.40. Like, that's on a good day, right? I, I have a, a, a friend who, uh, she was supposed to be at work at 8.30, and, okay, honey, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it was you, hon. Can I tell the story still? Oh, I was trying to hide it. So somebody who will remain nameless... <laughs> had a job where she needed to be at work at 8.30, and she, she, always, she was consistent. She was consistent. She always got there at 8.34. 8.34, not 8.35 or 8.33, 8.34. And so her boss, who's a wonderful friend of ours, that was his nickname for her was 8.34. That's what they started calling her was 8.34, right? All right, I'm sorry, honey. I, didn't, I was trying to keep it a secret, right? Trying to keep it anonymous. Anyway, are you the kind of person who you, it, you can't, it's hard to get your act together being on time. Maybe for you, you're the kind of person, did you ever used to do this back in the days when we actually used clocks? Do you guys remember what clocks looked like before our phones started telling us what time it was? And you would use a clock and you could actually set the clock forward. Right now, our phones are controlled by, you know, the satellites and government programs. You know, we can't really, we don't really have control over our phone anymore, right? So we can't even control our, the time. You can't really set it forward. I don't think you can. Anyway, but you used to be able to set your clock forward. And so what some people, did you ever do this? Like, I'm always late. So if I set my clock forward, uh, you know, 10 minutes or something like that, then it'll, it'll trick me into being on time, right? So you need to be there at 830 you look at the clock, or you've set it, you've set it 10 minutes ahead, you look at the clock, you're like, oh my gosh, it's 8.15, I gotta get out of here, and you, you jump in the car, and you're brushing your teeth on the way to work, and sure enough, you get there on time for one day, right? And then the next day, what happens, right? right? You look at the clock, and it says 8.15, and inside, you're like, okay, it's not really 8.15, right? 
it's only 8.05, so you go back to sleep, right? And so, so then, then, then what you realize is, okay, then what you need to do is if you did this, you actually just keep setting the clock forward more and more and more. I have a friend, I'm not kidding you, he set, by the time he was finished, he set his clock forward 45 minutes. It was 45 minutes fast, and he was still late. How many of us, no matter how hard we try, there's some area of our life where we just, we can't get our acts together. Maybe it's not being on time. Maybe for you, it's something like school. School is something where, as far as you see things, you just can't get your act together. Right? You, you know, and, and maybe this is, a, this is a new year, right? We're coming into the, the fall semester, and you're saying to yourself, this is the year when I get my act together. This is the year when I don't stay up late binge-watching Netflix, I'm going to do my homework, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to study, I'm not going to sleep in, uh, I'm not going to miss my classes, right? And say, so this is the year. The, the only problem is you've been saying this for the last 10 years. Is there something like that where you just can't get your act together? Whether Maybe it's being late, maybe it's uh, being ready for school, maybe it's in your job, right? Maybe some of us are farther along and... And the reality is the way that you feel about your career is you almost feel like you just couldn't get your act together. You've never been able to get your act together with regards to your career, right? Maybe, maybe you have, it's been difficult for you to keep a job. It's been difficult for you to stay in a, a job for various reasons. Maybe it's been difficult for you to work with other people. You've had difficulties with those in leadership. Uh, maybe you've just found yourself your mind getting disinterested and just kind of moving to something else. And then you find yourself many years later realizing you just, you just have never been able to really get your act together with regards to your career. Right? How many of us can resonate with this? There's some area of our lives where we just we can't, get our, we can't get our acts together. Maybe, maybe it's something else. Maybe for you it's something like your anger. It's been very difficult for you to get your act together with regards to controlling your anger, you've said to yourself, I'll never do that again. I'll never talk to somebody like that again. But then time and time again, you find yourself responding with anger in ways that you regret. You feel like you just can't get your act together. Maybe for you, it's, it's not anger. It's not that. Maybe for you, it's, it's something like pornography, something along those lines where you, you have said to yourself, I'm going to kick this. I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to get over this. But time and time again, you find that you just can't seem to get your act together. Today, we are continuing in our series on the book of Romans, a series called Good News. And of course, the book of Romans is a letter that was written by a man named Paul, writing about 20, 25 years, something like that, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing to these Christian communities in the city of Rome, and, and what we've seen, the title of this series has been Good News, right? That what he wants to announce is that what God has done in and through the person of Jesus Christ is the good news that we've all been looking for in a world of bad news, right? He's, he's writing to a, a people that certainly in their context would have seen their lives as, as having, uh, receiving a lot of bad news. I think a lot of us can resonate with this. We live in a a bad news world, and so the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, is this unbelievably refreshing letter which says, no, there is good news. God has done something in and through Jesus that is good, and so we've been unpacking 
what does this good news look like? We've been unpacking that over the last several weeks, and even it's been a couple of, of months now. And what's interesting is we come to this passage, the passage that was just read, we find something kind of strange. There's something strange about this good news. As we, as we open this up and look at this chapter, chapter 7 of the book of Romans, we notice something, uh, well, it's, it's really kind of strange. In fact, it's something that I think is particularly strange coming from someone who we would regard as, a, as the founder of a, of a religion, one of the founders of, of a religion. Like, so Paul, the, the person who wrote this, you know, next to Jesus, he would be seen as the most influential person in the history of Christianity, as one of the founders of the Christian religion. And so, you know, this book, if you ever thought about it this way, the Bible, the book of Romans, is seen as a religious book, a religious text, right? If you are on your way into the city, you're commuting to the city on a train or on a bus, and if you open up your Bible and you start reading the letter of Romans and somebody sees you reading it, what are they going to think? They're going to think, well, that's a religious person. They're reading the Bible. They're reading the letter of Romans. They're a religious person because that's a religious text written by, you know, a religious person, like a religious figure, a foundational religious person. And so it's kind of interesting here because what Paul seems to say here is remarkably strange for, for what we would anticipate or expect a religious person to say. It's very odd. It's very bizarre what he seems to say in this passage. And, and what, what is it? What really does he get at here, especially in the beginning? It's really remarkable for a religious person to say this. He's, he seems to be saying, on the surface, he seems to be saying that because of Jesus, you don't have to get your act together. Because of what God has done in and through Jesus, you don't have to get your act together. Right? I mean, that's like the opposite of what a religious person, you would think they would say. I mean, isn't religion all about getting your act together? Oh, you know, he found religion, which is a way of saying, you know, he's, he's trying to get his act together. But what Paul seems to be saying on the service is that, is that because of Jesus, you don't necessarily need to get your act together. In other words, as he puts it, you don't need to follow the law. You have died to the law, right? That's what he says here. Uh, in verse 4 and in verse 6 of this passage, says verse 4, So my brothers, you also died to the law. You died to the law. And in verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. And what is he talking about when he talks about the law? He's talking about, he's talking about the Old Testament commands. He's, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. He's talking in particular about the law that was given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all of the, the laws that flowed out of that. Uh, and, and he's saying, you've been released from that. These laws, which, again, what are the commandments that God has given us? Really what they are. Here's what they are. The commands that God has given us is basically God's blueprint for how to get your act together. That's what they are. The, the commands of God, it's God's blueprint for getting your act together and and and. Paul seems to be saying, yeah, we've died to that. When you put your faith in Jesus, you've died to the law. You've died to this requirement of getting your act. You don't have to get your act together is what it seems like he's saying. And then he uses this analogy of marriage in the early part of the passage 
where he says, you know, when you're married to somebody, you have these legal obligations, right? As long as you're both alive, right, until death do us part, you are bound, the law binds you, certain obligations, but when one of you dies, then you're no longer bound, right? It's, it's, you're gone, you're released from it. And he's saying that, that in this sense, what's happened is that when you put your faith in Jesus, there is this sense in which you have died to the law, and you are released from it. This idea, you, you don't have to get your act together. You don't have to follow the law. I mean, think about how strange that is. I mean, that, that would be like the sheriff of Bergen County saying, hey, guess what? Because I'm sheriff, uh, you don't actually have to follow the laws. You don't have to obey the police officers. You don't have to do what they say. It would be like a, a, a teacher, a school teacher saying, hey, you know, welcome to class. Uh, I'm the teacher. You don't have to do any work. You don't have to do any homework. I mean, it's totally bizarre for this religious figure, Paul, to be saying you've died to the law. You've died to the commands of God. You have died to God's blueprint for getting your act together. Right? So this question then emerges, and Paul, which then addresses this. Okay, well, wait a minute. Are you saying then that, that the law, the commands of God were bad? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Are you saying that these commands that were given are bad and, and that they were, like, that they're evil? I even use that word, that the commands of God are evil? And, and he says, no, right? He, verse, verse 7, he says, again, this question is what emerges in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? <laughs> I mean, think about that. Is the law sin? The commands of God, are they actually sinful? Are they evil? And... He says, certainly not. Certainly not. He says, no, no, that, 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 that's, that's not it. It's not that. And then he goes on. What he says is that if it weren't for the law, right, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't really know what sin is. Again, in verse 7, it goes on. Certainly not. I would not have known what sin was except for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet. And we, we talked about this last week or the week before, right, that, that uh, you know, I, I took a firecracker and I blew a screen, I blew a hole in the screen window. This is when I was a kid. Sorry, this wasn't just like in the church parsonage. I probably should have mentioned that. Uh, back when I was like 10, I took a firecracker, put it in the screen window, blew a big hole. And, uh, and, and the reality was that was wrong, right? It was definitely wrong. I suppose I could have said, well, Mom, you never told me that not to put a firecracker in a screen window. Um, and I would have maybe had a point, but it was still wrong. But the point is, if my mom had, had said, Kevin, whatever you do, don't put a firecracker in the screen window. And then I went and did it, it's like it takes it to another whole level, right? Then you really see, okay, that's really not what you're supposed to do. And what Paul's saying is that, is that actually the law was supposed to do that to show you what sin is. So, so it's not evil, it's not bad. I mean, you, you go through the scriptures and you discover that the law was intended to give life. Proverbs, uh, uh, seven, uh, Proverbs 7, 2, and 3 says, keep my commands and you will live. Keep my commands and you will live. In Psalm 1, it talks about blessed is the man who, who meditates, delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. That individual who meditates on the commands of God, that he is like a tree uh, planted by streams of water who, who bears fruit, this idea that, that following God's commands is what leads to life. Psalm, uh, Psalm 19 
same sort of thing. You know, the, the, the law gives light to my eyes. It gives joy to my heart. It, it leads to life. Psalm 119, right? You find this throughout the book of Psalms. I like to say that the book of Psalms is like the sort of uh, the, the diary of the collective soul of the people of God. If you were to take the people of God, the people of Israel, and imagine that their collective experience, they wrote a diary of their life, you would that's what you find in the book of Psalms. And what you find in the book of Psalms is this journey through life. And the, the psalmist experiences all kinds of, of things, all kinds of trials, all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of wonderful things. Right? Just, it's sort of this diary of the experience of the life of the people of Israel. And what you find is throughout it, at, at different places in the 150 chapters that there are, it keeps coming back to this idea that the law is the path to life. That God gave it to be what leads to life. So the question is then, okay, if that's true, then why is it good news that we have died to the law? Why would would Paul say this? Jesus came and and through faith in him you have died to the law. Why would that be good news? And what Paul wants us to understand here is this. Is that yes, the law points us to the way to life. But here's the problem. On your own... It is impossible to follow the law. On your own, listen to this, on your own, it is impossible to get your act together. It's impossible. You see, it's good news that you've died to it because it's absolutely impossible to follow. And that's what he's getting at here in verses 14 through 19. I mean, really, the, the, the latter half of the whole chapter, he just goes on and on about this. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. See, the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I, I I know that nothing good lives in me, for I desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. He's saying, I want to do the law. I want to follow the law. I want to do what it says, but, but I can't. I can't do it. And, and I think that there's a sense in which what Paul's kind of getting at here is that, is that the law is like a map. And it shows you how to get to eternal life. It shows you how to get to the fullness of life. It's a map. But a map can't actually get you somewhere. Right? I mean, imagine if I'm like, imagine I don't know my geography very well, which is true, but not quite this bad. If I were to say to myself, oh, boy, you know what? I'd like to go to California. Hey, honey, let's go for a bike ride. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Let's get the kids, and, you know, they're learning how to ride their bike. Let's, let's go to California. Okay, all right, well, let's uh, better get a map. I don't really know where it is. So we, we pull out a map or we go to Google Maps or whatever, and, and it gives you instructions. And, and, like, by bike, it takes, like, you know, 150 days or something. Like, Wait a minute, what is going on here? Oh, I didn't realize that's how far it was. See, the map shows you how to get It shows you what's there, but the map can't get you there. Right, do we have any... Uh, any kind of space geeks, space nerds? Anybody here just love space, outer space? You love to 
just look at the stars, dream about going there. Right, I was looking, they, 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 have, they have maps that we know where the stars are, like Alpha Centauri, I think it is, some star system. You know, maybe there's, uh, maybe there's planets there with life, we don't know. And we, we, we have these mapped out, right? So we got a map, you know, know which way to go to get there. So I could give you a map and you could try to go. But good luck, right? The map isn't going to be able to, to get you there. You see, the, the, the law, the law is like that map. It's like that map trying to get to Alpha Centauri. Like, you know where it is. You might be able to see it, but you, you can't get there simply by having a map. The question is, of course, why is it? Why is it so impossible to follow the law? Why is it so impossible? And here's why. Because the power of sin is real. The power of sin is real. That's what Paul wants us to see over and over again in this passage is that there is this this power called sin. And, And the Bible, of course, uses all kinds of language, all kinds of imagery to talk about that which pulls us away from God, pulls us away from his commands, pulls us away from that which would allow us to get our acts together. But here he just says, look, it's, it's sin. Look at this. Let me just read a couple of verses for you here. Going back, it says, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. And, and, I, and I, what's going on here, the way Paul words this, uh, Paul... Uh, Paul, what he seems to be doing, the language of that passage there, is he seems to be retelling the story of Israel uh, using sort of a personal language because he's saying, this is me. I, I am part of the people of Israel. I'm part of the people of God. This is my story. This is our story. He's taking it. It's like, he, he's, he's, it's like he's taking the story of Adam and he's taking the story of Moses. So, God gives Adam a command. God gives Moses the commandments. It's like he's taking those two stories and combining them in one and basically saying, this is our story. This is our story. This is my story. And he says the law came, but there is this force. There is this thing called sin, that sin is real. And sin makes it impossible for us to follow the law, in fact, in, in verse 17, you know, he, he, he puts it this way. He says, as it is, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. It's interesting here because I think, and we got to see here, is that Paul actually is, in a sense, saying here, he, he's, he's saying that we are inherently good. We are inherently good. God created us. He designed us. He made us in our image. We are inherently good. Good, yes, but there is this, this sin that is at work, this force that is pulling at us, 
working on us and, and pulling us away from the way God intended us to live. Now, of course, you know, we live in an age, a secular age, that denies the power of, of sin, doesn't, doesn't really acknowledge this as a real issue. And I think it's really ironic that we live in this world where, where people, ah, eh, sin, that power of sin, I don't really believe in that. And yet, when, when, when you look at our world, it's so clear we really do think there's such thing as sin, right? I mean, how can we say there's no such thing as sin, and yet the United States spends $590 billion on our military every to protect us from sin. How can our society say there's no such thing as sin when, we, when, when municipalities spend about 40% of their budget on law enforcement? And in fact, we're, we're increasingly spending more and more money on law enforcement, and yet our society wants to say there's no such thing as sin? I think it's obvious that there is this thing called sin that is at work. We, we, we say that there's no such thing as sin, and yet we can't even trust people to not steal candy. I've shared, I've shared this before. I thought it was sort of ironic. When I was living in Boston going to seminary at Gordon-Conwell uh, Seminary, I had a, a chance to take a class at Harvard, and I thought it was interesting because at Harvard is, is a place where you're more likely to find people who just talk about the inherent goodness of humanity. You're more likely to find those who are going to say, no, sin isn't really, isn't real. But what I found kind of interesting is that at Harvard, if you want to get a candy bar, right, you, you've got to go to a vending machine and put money in it. You, you can't just, like, you know, go up there and, and, and put 50 cents down and reach in and grab it. It's, like, locked in there. There's a padlock. And you've got to put your money in there and press the right numbers. And if you try to get in there, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like trying to rob a bank trying to get into this thing, right? And what's ironic is then at my seminary where I went to school, where we actually believed in the power of sin, uh, we actually had a snack bar that was on the honor system. Right? So you, you could go and you could buy a Snickers, just, just put money on the table. So the irony is, well, in our school, we believe in the power of sin, and we do it on the honor system, but at a place like Harvard where they wouldn't believe in that, oh, no, we can't trust people. We have to put it in, you know, in, a, in a vending machine. And, of course, we'll see here in a minute why it is that my school would do the honor system, would use the honor system. But the point here is that, you know, I think it's really ironic that we live in a culture that tries to say there's no such thing as sin, yet everything about our culture says, no, there, there really is. We have all these protective measures that are clearly there because the power of sin is real. And so I would almost put it like this. If the law, the commands of God, if they are like a map of the stars to get us to Alpha Centauri or however you say that, wherever that is. If that's what the law is, then sin is like gravity. If Alpha Centauri, if, or excuse me, if the law is, is like a map that gets you to Alpha Centauri, sin is like gravity. That in the same sense that gravity, you can't, you can't just jump. Oh, I see it. I see it at night, I'll just go there. No, no, you've got a thing called gravity, which is going to stop you. And in the same sense, sin keeps us from following the law. I want you to think about gravity here for a minute. I want you to think about the pervasiveness of gravity on your body. It's so, it's so pervasive, you just you start to lose track of it. You start to not even notice it. But gravity has a tremendous effect on your body. It is affecting you right now. It affects you every second of your life. It affects you when you're at work. It affects you when you're playing sports. It affects you when you're sleeping. I mean, it affects you 
in all kinds of ways. And even just the effect of gravity on your body is actually quite remarkable. It's, it's quite damaging that a lot of, of what we experience as we get older, a lot of the physical problems that we have are closely related to the effect that gravity has on us. Gravity affects our circulation. People, when you get varicose veins, you get swollen feet. A lot of this is the result of gravity constantly pulling on your body. Uh, They talk about prolapsing. I was looking this up. Prolapsing, when your organs prolapse, and apparently what that is is your organs move out of place. They shift out of place from where they're supposed to be, and one of the primary causes of prolapsing is simply that gravity is constantly pulling down on your organs. Gravity is, if you ever had back pain, back pain, anybody, right? Oftentimes what causes back pain is nothing more than gravity, which is constantly pulling on your spine, constantly pulling on your back. I read this. I don't know where I read this. I don't know if this is real or not, but it's, it's really interesting. It was actually claiming that gravity pulls so much on your spine that during the day, it releases moisture from the little parts of your spine, something like this, and it releases that moisture, it's pulling on it, and it actually shrinks your body. It was claiming that on a given day, you can shrink by half an inch or three-quarters of an inch. Now, then at night, it replenishes, right? That's what you're not, right? For the most part, it replenishes at night. But during the day, you can actually lose half an inch, three-quarters of an inch of your height. And this was revolutionary to me. This is why from now on, whenever I go to my doctor for my regular checkups, I always go in the morning. Because if I go in the morning, there's a better chance I'll be five foot seven. But if I go in the afternoon, he might, he might put me at five foot six and a half. And I can't, I can't have that, right? You've got to learn that. So gravity has this remarkable effect on the body. It's always working. And what I would say is that sin is the same way. In the way that gravity is always working and pulling at your body, sin is always working on and always pulling at your soul. It is always wreaking havoc on you. And and so, I mean, let's just kind of put it this way. I mean, isn't it true that that, that maybe trying to be kind to that coworker who is really annoying, that person who said, you know what, I'm going to try to be nice to them. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be nice to them. But then, you know, day after day, you just can't. Like, you just can't, you cannot handle them. It's almost like, it's almost like it would be easier to jump off the surface of the planet than to be nice to your coworker, right? I mean, isn't it true that some of these things that we wrestle with, that we struggle with, it would be easier to jump off the face of the planet than to be on time. It would be easier to jump off the, the face of the planet than to, to, to kick this habit. It would be easier to jump off the face of the planet than it would be to to really get rid of that bitterness that I'm harboring towards somebody else. Sin is like gravity, and it prevents us. It prevents us from becoming who God wants us to be. And one of the things about sin is the deceptiveness of sin. There is a deceptiveness of sin. Uh, And and this is mentioned here in verse, verse 11. It talks about this, that part of what makes sin so powerful is its deceptiveness. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. This idea that sin deceives us. I mean, and and isn't this true? Because the reality is when you find yourself not getting your act together, part of the reason why is, is something in you justifies what you're doing, right? 
part of you justifies. So, so maybe if, if you're getting angry at somebody, right, in the moment when you, when you lose it towards somebody and you, right, in that moment you feel justified. Am I right about that? There's something in you in that moment that says, no, no, this is right. What I'm doing is right. It's only later in hindsight that you're like, okay, I blew that out of proportion. But you sin, sin deceives us and tricks us into believing that what we're thinking and feeling and doing is right, is in, in line with God. And we see this kind of deception all over the place. Right? I mean, if I can just be a little bit controversial here for a moment, I think the deceptiveness of sin has worked it into the way people think about politics. And I, my goal right now is to offend everybody. But I honestly think that in America right now, whether you're on the right or you're on the left, there is an avenue or a, an aspect of the way in which you see things which is massively deceived. I think we all are. Whether you lean to the right or you lean to the left, we, when God shines his light on the truth of things, whether you're on the right or you're on the left, you are going to discover that you've been massively deceived. If you're, if you're someone who, like, all you ever do is, I mean, you're always, you're always defending the, the right-wing way of seeing things. You're always standing up for that, and, and, and you're always standing against the left or the other way. If you're someone that's always standing up for the left agenda and you're always pushing back against the right, I, I believe that when the light of the truth of the gospel shines in, both sides are going to realize that there's an element in the way you're seeing things in which you're being massively deceived. Sin is deceptive. That's one of the powerful ways in which it brings us down. The power of sin is real. So the question is, well, what's the answer? How do we, how do we get our acts together? As we've already seen, the answer is not simply to try harder. A lot of people think that's what religion is about. Again, come to church and the pastor will tell you, come on, you can do it. It's some sort of a pep talk to try to get you to try harder. No, that's, that's not the answer. What is the answer? The answer is so simple. The answer is to turn to Jesus. The heart of the Christian faith is you cannot get your act together on your own. The heart of the Christian faith is that only by the power of God working in us can we begin to follow the law. Can we begin to walk in that way that leads to life? And this is what, what's so powerful about this passage. This whole passage, Paul is just building up, right? It's this whole, this whole argument that's just been building and building in building. I want to follow God. I want to follow the law. I want to do what's right. I want to live in those ways that will actually lead to life, but I can't do it. And he just builds, and he builds, and he builds, and he builds, and then he just leaves it, right? He puts it in this very dark place. He says, what a wretched man I am. You see, the, the Christian faith, what marks a person out as an individual who really is perhaps on the course to finding out what Jesus is really all about, is an individual who, when they look at themselves and they look at who they are on their own, they're able to say, what a wretched person I am. They realize that on their own, they're just deceiving themselves if they think that they've found the path to life. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
But then in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then jumping ahead, chapter 8, and we're going to unpack this more in coming weeks. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it weakened the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And, and so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Friends, let me ask you this question again. Is there an area of your life where you find it very difficult to get your act together? Is there an area in your life where you feel stuck You feel stuck. You feel stuck like a person trying to get to Alpha Centauri, stuck on the ground. The the, the most you could do is jump like a foot off the ground on a good day. Maybe again for you, it's an issue of anger. You're stuck in anger. Maybe for you, you're stuck in the grip of materialism where you need more and more and more and more, but you're finding it isn't what leads to life, but you can't get out of it. You can't break out of it. Maybe for you, it's the cravings of success. Maybe for you, it's, the, it's lust. Maybe for you, it, it could be any number of things that you're stuck in. And you go, you go to the scriptures, you go to the Bible, and you see these commands that are telling you to live a different way. What you need to realize that the purpose of those scriptures is to point you to Jesus. The reason is to show you how far it is, how difficult this is, And ultimately, to point you to Jesus, that's why what what Paul wants us to see is the entire Old Testament narrative, its entire purpose is ultimately to point us to Jesus because simply knowing what to do isn't going to do it. But if we will turn to Jesus, if we will humble ourselves before him day in and day out, we can begin to experience the change that only God can. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we we praise you for the good news of the gospel. We praise you that you love us. We praise you that you want us to experience the fullness of life. God, I pray maybe for some of us for the first time we might turn to you. Maybe we have been living out, outside of any sort of religious instruction and we're kind of new to all of this. And, but boy, we see the truth of, of who you are and the truth of what we need. Maybe for that individual for the first time they want to turn to you this morning. Maybe for others, it's time to remind ourselves how easy it is to be pulled away from this. God, help us to be centered once again in you, to be humbled before you. God, please make Jesus what we're about more than anything else. 
Make Jesus bigger than anything else that we focus on. God, make Jesus the center of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now come to...